55, as we typically do. We'll read this scripture, and then I'll go through the points that I want to make. So just follow along in your Bibles. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. And Saul approved of their killing him, killing Stephen. So this is picking up right after the end of chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned to death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Just a quick note, Samaria is actually north of Jerusalem, but it is lower in elevation than where Jerusalem is. That's why the Bible says he went down to Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon, this is Simon the sorcerer, saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had proclaimed the word of the Lord, and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So the first four verses of chapter 8 tell us of the persecution of the church, particularly through Saul. 
and the scattering of the believers throughout Judea and Samaria. But if you remember Jesus' words, what we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Don't you think Jesus should have said, you will be persecuted and you will be scattered and then you will be my witnesses? He leaves that out because that's inconsequential. You know, he says, look, you will receive power and then you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem. That's what the Jewish leaders said when these apostles were brought before them. You have turned the city upside down. You have filled the city, Jerusalem, with this message of Jesus. You've got to stop doing this. And now, as the church is being persecuted, the disciples, the believers, are being scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But you notice one important point about the disciples in verse 4? Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. They didn't say, oh, what a terrible thing. They didn't complain. They didn't hide. They preached the word wherever they went. Verse 5 st states, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. You'll remember from the Gospel of Luke that the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. They didn't count them as Gentiles, non-believers, ungodly, heathen, but they considered them as this sort of, you know, compromised group. There was a mix of Jewish and, and Assyrian and other groups of people within the Samaritans, and the Jewish people looked down on the Samaritans. They would not associate with them. And we saw in the book of Luke that the Jews would avoid even traveling through Samaritan land. Jesus, on the other hand, made it a point to interact with and highlight Samaritans. In John chapter 4, we read about Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, but then in Luke 10, we read that we considered the story of the good Samaritan who cared for the man who was robbed, beaten, and left to die. And in Luke 17, Jesus commends the Samaritan man who was one of the 10 men that was healed, but the only one who came back to thank Jesus. And Jesus highlights that and talks about it. These were all brief interactions, and it's clear that Jesus' primary ministry was to the children of Israel as such, but he clearly makes that connection with the Samaritans. Now, here, Philip goes to, he deliberately is going to the Samaritans, he's living in their midst, and he's proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And in that regard, Philip is the first missionary in a different contextual context, right? a contextual environment for him than what he had been in and all that he had been part of. He is now in a completely different context and he is that first missionary in the modern sense of the term and the first person who is identified as an evangelist. And we'll come to that in Acts chapter 21, verse 8. But he's identified as Philip the evangelist. He's going to these places and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And as he ministers in Samaria, he attracts the attention of Simon the sorcerer. Uh, very dramatic ways, right? It's like uh, Simon the sorcerer. That's how he's known. And here, 
it brings us to this particular point that sometimes we can make the right decisions for the wrong reasons. Simon the sorcerer, for a long time, had amazed the people as what they called the great power of God. But he's so amazed at Philip and the power of God manifests through Philip. Signs and wonders are accompanying the proclamation of the word by Philip. The sorcery that Simon was practicing was more likely, you know, magic, tricks, things of that nature, illusions of some kind, astrology, and explicit demonic occultic activity. And, but, and, and, and he was doing all sorts of stuff. He was performing signs and wonders himself. And the people were following him. But, and, and, and by the way, when you look at all of that, you, you have to remember that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, Jesus said that wonder-working, false messiahs, false prophets will become more and more prominent as the end draws near. Right? So this section of Acts is reinforcing the fact, is reminding us that wonder-working power does not mean that the power wielded is necessarily God's power. It could be through a variety of other means. Right? And the Western world, most of the time, people are unaware of these kinds of supernatural things. And so when something happens that is supernatural, they think it's of God. But in the rest of the world, typically, people are very used to very dramatic things taking place and all sorts of signs and wonders. And we know, we know very clearly that not all of that is from God. And so here, here is Simon the sorcerer doing all of these things. But he's so taken by what he sees in Philip's ministry that he believes. And he's even baptized. Now, that in itself is a pretty good indication that Simon thinks that what Philip has is better and different than what he has. If he thought that he had something that was genuine, that was good, that was right, that was superior, he would have said to Philip, hey, your signs and wonders? Nothing. My signs and wonders are better. It would have been like those, those court officials, the court magicians of Pharaoh, who when Moses cast down his rod, they cast down their rod too, so that it, when it was transformed into a snake. But very quickly, very quickly, when the miracles and those plagues of, started to be manifest in Egypt, you find that the court magicians couldn't keep up. They couldn't do this. They couldn't replicate what was happening. But if Simon the sorcerer was very convinced that what he had was off God or that was good or superior, he would have tried to oppose Philip. He, didn't, he did not. He is so amazed about what Philip is doing or saying and the things that are happening that he says, I, I, I want this. I believe. And I'm really even willing to be baptized. Wouldn't we look at that today in our churches and say, whoa, the sorcerer. Look at what even this guy who was doing all this kind of stuff. Ooh, he's become a believer. He even got baptized. Right? Mm. Praise God. But you know, Simon, it, it, it does beg the question for us as to why Simon was considered a believer and baptized, baptized so quickly. And remember, as we talked about this in terms of 
if it is from God. When we looked at that phrase and those things about discernment, was it that there was a lack of discernment? That people didn't realize that Simon was really not believing? Was there a rush to promote the conversion? Ooh, such a dramatic conversion. Ooh, you know, look at this. Or did Simon push for it himself? The Bible doesn't make any of those things very clear. It doesn't clearly say what happened here. It just simply says it that he believed he was baptized. But it's very clear, very clear, that when you consider what happens right after that, Simon didn't really believe. He wasn't believing in the Lord Jesus. What did he believe? He, when he sees Peter and John arrive, when they arrive, and they lay hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit, Simon offers them money to have the same power. By the way, in English, there's a word called simony. And simony, in English, comes from this incident with Simon. It refers to the attempt to secure ecclesiastical office, or that means just a position in the church, religious leadership. It, it, it attempts to get that kind of office or privilege through monetary means. So when you hear that kind of an expression that somebody is trying to buy the position or privilege, the word for that is simony, which comes from Simon, the sorcerer. So here he is. He is wanting the power that he sees in Peter and John and in Philip. And it speaks to the fact that many times around us, people who acquire a lot of wealth think that their material resources can get them whatever they want. Peter, who we've already seen, is able to rightly discern the heart and motive. Right? He's rightly able to discern what is going on in somebody's life, even when they say something quite public and they do something quite visible. And we saw that in the life of, or in the case of, Ananias and Sapphira. They are doing something that seems good. They sold property. They brought the money to the church or to the, to the assembly. And they claim to be doing the right thing. But Peter is able to discern that they are lying to the Holy Spirit. And so he, now he, Peter, says to Simon the sorcerer, your heart is not right before God. You are full of bitterness and captive to sin. That is not a description of a person who has submitted to the Lord Jesus and allowed Jesus to be Lord and master of his life and received the salvation, the redemption of God from his sin. It's not a description of that kind of a person. This is a description where Peter is saying, you haven't really believed. You haven't really come to the Lord. See, Simon wanted the power. He wanted the results, the outcome. He wanted the glory so that he could continue to amaze the people, so that he could continue to make money off them so that he could continue to be someone of power, of repute. And it doesn't seem like he truly desired to have a relationship with Jesus or grow in that relationship with Jesus. Which brings us to this question of ourselves. What have you believed in about Jesus 
And why did you believe it? What caused you to say, I believe in Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Was it for what you could get out of it? If I believe Jesus, oh, okay, I can get these benefits. Was it for that reason that you believed in Jesus? Was it because everybody else was doing it? The whole crowd seems to be believing in this. My parents believe in this. My family believes in this. My friends believe in this. Maybe I need to believe in this too. Was it because it was comparatively better than what you already had? You were holding on to something. You had a particular way of life. You did something, and all of a sudden, someone came along and said, here's Jesus. And you looked at it, and you said, oh, this seems better. So I'll do this. But in every one of those choices, in every one of those cases, and maybe other reasons for what motivated you to believe, I challenge you this morning that you would examine and ask yourself, do I truly believe in Jesus for all the right reasons? For truly what the word of God describes about him? What was it that brought me to Jesus? What was it that caused me to say, I'm a believer? What is it that maybe even led me to be baptized? What was it that prompted me? Was it truly of the Lord? Was it truly of the word? Or is my heart still captive to sin? Am I still living in the old way? Still having bitterness in my heart? Still at odds with those around me? But I claim, I claim to be a believer. When we look at these kinds of things, we should never look at the people who are, who are featured in these stories and say, oh, what a terrible guy. The reason that the Bible gives us these stories is so that we can look at ourselves. And we can bring ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, examine and reveal my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. So, the question that we have to ask is, did we respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit to believe? Did we see God for who he is? His character, his person, his provision. Did we see that? Did we understand that? God was not just the miracle worker, but he provided a plan for our salvation. Did we understand that plan? Did we see our own condition? Did we see that we were desperately you know, lost in our sin? Did we recognize what was in our own hearts? Did we come to him and say, Lord, I, I, I'm good in these areas. By the strength of my hand and the material resources that I have, I can take care of all of these things. I just have a need in this one place. Can you just do that? Or bless this plan that I already have? Or provide for me in these particular ways? Then I'm good. Did we come to God in that way? Or did we recognize that we have a desperate need for a savior? That without him, we have nothing. That Jesus who paid the penalty for our sin, Jesus who gave his very blood for our sin, Jesus who gave everything for us, now says, give me your life. It's not a partial response. It's not something given to the Lord. It's everything. That kind of trust, that kind of Dependence, that kind of surrender. Clearly, Simon the sorcerer didn't do that. 
but it's a reminder for us this morning that we would say, Lord God, I realize that you are eager to call me your child, to adopt me as your child, to call me into your family, to embrace me, to lay your hands on me, and that you have a growing, that you desire to have a growing and fruitful relationship with me. And that, Lord Jesus, it's not just for the here and now. You will return one day, and you will join me to you, and you will watch over me and have me in you, united in you for eternity. Oh, this is a promise. This is a great truth that we have an opportunity to make the right decision for the right reasons. Not for the wrong reasons. You may say you're saved, you're baptized, but have we done that for the right reasons? Motivated by the right things in the spirit, in our heart. And when we do that, when we make those right decisions for the right reasons, then we can be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. In the past few weeks, I've been emphasizing the need for and the opportunity for every one of us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As it happened for the Samaritans, and we'll see later in other chapters in Acts that other people are being filled with the Spirit, there is a ministry, there is an impartation, there is a filling of the Holy Spirit that is subsequent to the initial filling of the Spirit at conversion, when we first believe in Jesus. The apostles felt that this baptism of the Holy Spirit was so important that they came to Samaria to pray for and lay hands on people just so that they would receive the Spirit. Now, it doesn't imply that only an apostle or a church leader can pray for others to receive the Spirit. In fact, what we were emphasizing last week is that there isn't a forced distinction between the clergy and the laity. There isn't this distinction between those who minister the word and those who wait on tables. No, we're equally called to be prophets, priests, and royalty or exercising royal authority and that we are called to minister in these ways to one another. We lead in some circumstances, we follow in others, it may change in time, but we are called to collectively, one with another, help and direct our, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through us to one another so that we benefit as a body of Christ. So as we do that, it means that we need to desire and seek the continual filling of the Spirit. The way that the filling of the Spirit will manifest in each one of our lives is going to look different. For some, it may be expressed you know, up front, visible. Right? There's a way in which the Holy Spirit moves, and you're able to express that in multiple different ways. For others, it may be very, very hidden. It may not be very visible, but you're praying and interceding and moving and acting and doing those things that the Holy Spirit prompts you. For others, it may be the gifts of the Spirit that are manifest and allow you to minister to somebody else with an apt word of knowledge, apt word of wisdom, with a prophetic word, with other encouragement. If for others, it may be that there is healings and deliverance that is ministered through you. For others, there may be other helps and assistance that you are doing. In whatever way that the Holy Spirit would work through you, you yield to the Holy Spirit and you say, Lord Jesus, I desire for the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. 
I desire for the filling of the Holy Spirit. I desire for the abundance, for the overflow of the Holy Spirit, so that when I come to even close proximity with another person, they would know, they would experience, they would, like Simon the sorcerer, say of, say of Philip, I want what he's got. I want what he's got. I have all this stuff, but I clearly see that I have something, that this person has something different. That we would stand out in that way. In our speech, in our conduct, in our, in our, in our every activity, in our, in our you know, service in the workplace, in our interactions with family members, whatever it may be. That they would see that truly this person is a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, when we minister in those ways, when we serve God in, like that, in those ways, we adopt new paradigms. We adopt new ways of thinking. We get changed. The message this morning I titled The True Transformation because it was very clear that Simon the Sorcerer did not go through a true transformation regardless of what he said. But as we are truly believing in the Lord Jesus, as we truly yield and submit to him, as we surrender to him and as we are filled with the Holy Spirit and a true transformation starts to take place in our lives, progressively changing us, moving us from faith to faith, from glory to glory, from strength to strength, from understanding to understanding, from wisdom to wisdom. And when it does that, then the way that we used to be changes. Our paradigms change. You know, in the last part of what we read in verse 25, it says about Peter and John, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. You know why this is remarkable? Because when you consider what John did in Luke chapter 9, when we were looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 9, verses 51 through 56. So in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56, it says this. As the time approached for him, for Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. His Galilean ministry was completed, and he's making his way to Jerusalem. We started to read of that transition. But he's on his way, and Samaria is in that path from Galilee coming to Jerusalem. And he, and and he's setting out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Samaritans and Jews had the conflict, everything else, so on. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. The same John who looked at the Samaritans and said, Ooh, what wicked people. Lord, you want me to call fire down from heaven? Now, he seems to be pretty confident that he could get this done. I don't know if he would have been able to, but he, he wants, his goal is not so much on the manifestation of the sign or that it's coming through him. The comment that he makes, the statement that he makes is directed 
as direct opposition and anger towards the Samaritan. He's saying, Lord, we need to do something about these people. They didn't receive us. Let's get rid of them. So you want me to call down fire, God? And if Jesus had said, yes, sure, then he's maybe believing that Jesus would make it possible. right? Jesus rebukes him. But you understand that it's the same John who now comes to Samaria, who comes and he's laying hands on, and the Holy Spirit is given to the people, and then they're making their way back to Jerusalem. They don't just rush back to Jerusalem. The Bible says that they preached the Messiah in many villages in Samaria. Why the change? Why the transformation? Why this compassion? Why? Why does he now say, Samaritans, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And I want you to come into the same experience, the same blessing, the same benefit that I have because of Jesus. You know what changed? The Holy Spirit. James and John were called the sons of thunder. They were always impetuous. They were always like, ah. But now, what changes? James and John, John in this particular instance, has understood what it means for Jesus to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. When Jesus baptizes us, when John the Baptist said, one is coming after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When Jesus transforms us, when Jesus is truly at work in our hearts and in our lives, the paradigm shifts. We're no longer considering Samaritans the way we used to. We're no longer looking at people at the way that we used to. We're no longer wanting to call down fire from heaven to destroy them. We're wanting to call down a different fire from heaven to baptize them, to fill them, to empower them, to bless them. Who do we consider unreachable? Who have we felt deserves the fire of God to fall on them? Democrats? So many people around the world, around the nation today. <laughs> Who have we judged? Who have we avoided? If we're holding on to those attitudes, you can say you're a believer. You can say you've been baptized. You can say you know Jesus. But you're no different than Simon the Sorcerer. If we're holding on to those views of other people, those that are not like us, those that don't believe quite like we do, those that don't seem to adhere to the word of God the way that we do, those that don't receive us the way that we want, those that don't seem to conform to our expectations, what do we do? If we are judging those folks, hating them, dealing with them with anger, there is no true transformation in our lives. There is no compassion. There is no love. If we claim to have the Spirit, if we claim to be believers, then the fruit of the Spirit is to love. It is to rejoice in the salvation and, those, and the growth of those who were previously opposed to us. 
It is to pray for deep and abiding peace between us. It is to be patient. It is to be kind. It is to be good. It is to be faithful. It is to be gentle. It is to be self-controlled with everyone. And so this morning, I challenge you, I encourage you, when you read this story, that we would respond by praying for a genuine transformation of the heart. Maybe you've been a believer, maybe you've been a Christian for a long period of time. And maybe there has been a transformation that took place in your heart. But I want to challenge you afresh on this day, as we were reminded to rededicate, to rededicate, that you would say, Lord, come, examine me afresh and see if there is anything in me that is not a genuine transformation. Any, any part of my heart that I have held on to, that I have closed off, that I have said, okay, Lord, you can have 75% of my heart, but this 25% I'm holding on to. Because you don't know, Lord, what these people did to me. You don't know what has happened. You don't know the hurt that I've experienced. What about our hearts need to be genuinely transformed? What about our lives need to be truly given to the Lord that we would say, Lord, come. I don't want to profess something. I don't want to claim something and truly not be that way. I may even deceive myself into thinking that I'm good. But when true discernment comes, when true discernment is revealing the condition of my heart, bitterness in my heart is revealed. Captivity to sin is revealed. Lord God, transform me. Change me. Make me new. Oh Lord God, light a fire in me. Burn away all those things that need to be removed. And renew in me, purify in me those things that need to remain. And so when we pray like that, when we respond like that, we apply by dealing well with all people. One of the best measures of whether there is genuine transformation in your life is how you deal with people. Jesus said, they will know that you are Christians by your love, by your unity by how you treat one another, even within the believing community, even within the body of Christ, even within the, the church. But you know what? The world will know that you are a child of God because of your love, because of how you treat them. If there has been a genuine transformation in our lives, if during this season as we proclaim the birth of Jesus, as we are remembering that, as we sing about it, as we celebrate it, as we decorate, and we say, oh, we believe in Jesus, does the world around us, does the world around us not just see signs and wonders, as great as that may be, but do they see true, genuine love of God because our hearts are transformed? The biggest test for our lives, whether we have been changed by the Lord Jesus, is whether or not we treat people the way that the Lord Jesus treated them. He reached out to the Samaritans. He engaged, he blessed, and he sent his disciples. Even before they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, he said, you're going to go to Samaria. You're going to go to Samaria. You think that they're opposed to you? Guess what? You're going to go there. I will send you. 
These days, we need to be people who are saying, God, change me so that others may be changed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you love us so much, that you care for us, that you have saved us from our sin. You have redeemed us. You did not leave us to death, but you have given us life. But now, Lord, that you have called us to yourself, I pray, Father, that every part of our lives, every part of our hearts would be truly given over to you, that we wouldn't simply profess something and live another way, but, Lord, indeed, we would be truly and completely transformed in Christ Jesus. And because of that transformation, Lord, that the world may know that the world would experience your love, your light, your care. Oh, Lord God, grant us grace. Grant us grace. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for challenging us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for empowering us this morning for true transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Sunday morning, we want to remember that we are to die to self and to be raised up in Christ Jesus. That is the message of New Life Fellowship Church.